We probably should have sent these guys to Impulsive, honestly, bro. Have they not done it? I don't know. But I like I mean with the wrestling thing. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't know wrestlers. I feel like Hulk Hogan like legend. He, I've never watched wrestling, but like you know who he is, you know what he looks like. Yeah. He, like he's just like an international icon. Icon. Yeah. I wonder what he's like. Does he guzz too or no? Dude, I think they all just drink and party. Well, they did. Because Vince, dude, you got to think about it. Vince is like their Dana White. is the president owner, and he parties. So naturally, if that guy parties, it's like you. You party, so the rest of the squad parties. Yeah. Like, if you were True. a sober saint, I feel like no one You'd would. still party, bro. Yeah, but I'm different. I'm I, just wanna, do. I went on a two-week cleanse. Yeah. I'm doing five days hard. <laughs> five days yeah. off? No, five days hard. What's that mean? Like, everyone's doing 50 days hard, 75 days. 75 Five hard. days. Five days so off. Yeah. Because gym and no drinking because, dude, like a guy who drinks a good amount, you can't set the bar at 50. Like, I'm going to go 50 days out of nowhere. That's not going to happen. So start with like five. Maybe I'll start with like eight. I mean, Or a week. Yeah, do a week at least, bro. <laughs> One week and then. You can't do a week. <laughs> if I really wanted to, I could. You can't. Sober? Yeah, completely. Yes, I can, dude. No, you're, you're in head like you're <laughs> in your head. The way you think is like, okay, it's like if I'm not drinking, I'm allowed to do other shit. And if I'm not doing other shit, then I'm allowed to drink. Like, that's how you think. That's how you justify it in your head. You got to explain. Break that down. Well, I don't want to go too in depth. But yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. It's just something to do. Yeah. Like, if I'm not doing anything <laughs> exactly. and I want to go eat and have dinner, I'm going to have, like, maybe a cocktail or two. And then at least to six. And then fucking you sleep at Mike <laughs> Malak's house, right? <laughs> I didn't even. Yeah. Fuck that. Thanks for letting me crash, Mike. But that was brutal to wake up there. What other stories? Is there any other stories that have been happening recently? We haven't been all been together trying to think i've just been chilling i went back to oc didn't do shit for two weeks just work got back on gym well i guess you gambled with dana 140k yeah that was cool power slap yeah how'd that go it's just crazy because like when you play with dana especially when we're out there kind of like helping him with something he just he just won't let you lose which is so you're basically like you're playing with his bankroll so like i bought in i don't i haven't been like i don't really play at the live tables too much because we're just not if we go to Vegas, sometimes it's kind of hard to like. You guys are outside. No, I'm saying at Red Rock. But you're in a private room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying like Red Rock's the only casino that really like we have that like sauce VIP room. You know? Sure. Yeah. So we could play high stakes, and they'll give us markers and shit, right? So I got I got 50k, and I was playing, you know, up and down, up and down, and then eventually I lost it. Dana buys in, plays, 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 goes up. Hands me 30, 30k in chips, just slides it over and then says, "All right, make a comeback." And then and you made the comeback. Eventually, on the night, I finished like twenty k up that night. Next night, same thing, went down. He slides me chips, and then I made a comeback, and then I ended up winning forty k. One of the other guys from Bustin' with the boys was down. Taylor, he was down like a hundred and ten k. Jesus, but off there, he's taking markers or is it marker? Yeah, him? marker. Wow, they gave him yeah. a big marker. Yeah. And Dana won it back. And then, uh, it, no, well, then Dana, like, why does Dana when, do that? He's just that kind of a guy. I mean, He's just going there to bail you guys out and taking all the risk. Yeah. That's fucking. But he has so much oh, money, too, right? So he's like, he just keeps taking more markers. Like, if he goes down, he's like, all right, give me another 60. Give me another 60. Yeah, he's goaded for that. Yeah. That, so we all won that night. And he won, too. Well, he won everybody money. Yeah. Damn, bro. He won everyone money and he also won. He didn't, it was get, fucking, didn't get on the table that night. Yeah, he should have been there. Fuck, man. It was fucking dope. The thing he about, just wouldn't let us lose. I've seen him one time where at Caesars, he has a higher limit. 
And so he like literally took out 75K and just immediately fires one hand. Yeah. And I'm just like, holy shit. But he he even sweats that. Like he's dancing around a little bit. Yeah. And I'm standing standing there like it's it's weird to see a guy like that like sweat, but they have to fire 75k on a hand. So like in in literally one minute he could go up or down half a million, mm-hmm. which is like next level. I can't do that shit. Like we had action, light action on the. He's heat. like, he's just like yeah. Even just chilling with him that night too. We we got dinner after power slap and stuff like that, and just like fuck, bro. He's he is just such a boss, bro. He's like just the, the biggest shit, gangster. In just the, the shit he talks about behind the scenes that like, just like dif- different deals that are like, or like you know people trying to fuck him or fuck the UFC and like how he'll never let it go to like uh, woke, yeah, and shit like that. Talking about other leagues, yeah. It's just crazy how like a guy is the biggest balls, bro. Yeah, like it's tough to be at like that level and like just be like that confident in your own. You know decisions oh, too. Oh, for sure. Like you have different people in your ear and like people telling you to pussy out too. But like he's just like his way is the fucking he goes way. With his and he gut sticks every to time. his guns. Yeah, yeah, which is dope. And he sticks to what like he thinks is right. Yeah, that's fucking yeah. rare. But that's what makes him such a boss. Hit everyone fucks with him too. Yeah, like no one ever shits on Dana. You can't. And if they yeah. do, it's like he'll call you out. Yeah. Some me- like he even posted about some media outlet. Like I know the bar twisted his words. Yeah. And he posts about it and he's like, I didn't fucking say this. Yeah. With like, just wild. Never want to be on that guy's bad side. No. But he's we, such we, a good guy. You, you know what be. happens when you're on that guy's bad side, right? Fuck that, bro. Yeah. No, it's fucking pretty cool that we're fucking friends with him, man. He's just the fucking man. Well, welcome to the beach, my brother. I know. So is this, is this home base for you? This, I've lived here 69 years, brother. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we we've been here a lot to do different shit, filming. Every oh, time really? we every time we come here, it's just a fucking blast. <laughs> Are you in the Clearwater or, or Tampa? I'm right down the street. When'd you guys get in? Last night. Last night. What time? Like late. Like eleven. Oh hell. Yeah, we had uh, Monday night karaoke last night in the bar. It was What's your go to karaoke track? For me? Yeah. I don't sing, bro. I get the gong. You know? If you suck or if you drop the F bomb, you get gonged. You get gonged and the song's over. Well, what's the best like karaoke track you think to impress like some ladies? Ladies? Like Sweet Child of Mine or something? Or no, guy sang Voodoo a, Child, bro. Guy sang a Justin Timberlake song last yeah, night. Yeah, that's good. Mirrors melted bang. these girls, man. Which one did you? What, give? like Cry Me a River? No, it Mirrors. was a new one. It was a new one. I can't remember the name of it. But he started singing, man. It just, it was amazing. What would you do? Um. You wouldn't do it. I You're one know. of those. Maybe, Is that like an energy drink? Maybe our story, or what's it called? Our song, Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like an- <laughs> No, this is a uh, hard seltzer. Okay. Alcohol. Al- okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. You uh, you own your own bar here too? Yes, sir. That's awesome. So uh, is that only like a Monday night thing? or Karaoke's Monday. Um, the week is pretty strong. <clears throat> Friday night, we have uh, my son, Nick, does like a beach party with electronic music. And it gets really- crazy what's tonight Fridays. tonight is kind of slow <clears throat> sorry man i have a hard time looking at you because my neck's messed up so i have to look kind of like <clears throat> no you're good we could be able to pop in there tonight probably i think so yeah we'll go through does rick come through did he come through last night no rick didn't come through we've had him in i didn't have the gong back then i wish i would have so if you hit the gong then people have to get off oh yeah fuck you probably fuck some people's mental up though no bro i make sure you know we're cool. I mean, we got we got one guy named Nick Riddle, 
it's, he picks the hardest songs, man. He sings his ass off. He just picks like <laughs> real aggressive, like like punk rock stuff or like Green Day stuff or grunge stuff. He sings his ass off. He's won like three, three title belts and he's autistic, you know, and I had no idea, you know, and there was one time I almost gonged him and I didn't. And uh, cause he dropped a couple F bombs, but he was, he sang so good. I had to let him go. And my son, Nick Hogan goes, Hey dad, don't you know he's autistic? I said, no, I had no idea. <laughs> he, he couldn't tell the guy's the best singer we get in here. Yeah. You know? So I do gong, I've gone a couple of drunk guys that, <clears throat> you know, were dropping F bombs or yelling at their wife instead of singing when I gone and they <laughs> want to fight me, you know, I said, get your ass out of here. You <laughs> That's know? awesome. But it's, it gets a little crazy. That's fun. Well, yeah, you're an absolute legend, man. We appreciate you coming in, well, obviously. Thank you guys for having me. What's your, what's your like day-to-day life like now? Well, I'm kind of um, regrouping and ramping back up. I uh, haven't really wrestled since. I mean, I wrestled the Rock at 18. Vince at 19 was part of 20 and 21 WrestleManias. But since then, I've kind of really backed off. Still work with the WWE, but... Uh, gone to Saudi Arabia a couple of times and done stuff with Rick, but nothing physical, you know, cause, uh, my body shut down on me about 14 or 15 years ago. And I ended up having like 25, 26 surgeries in a row, 10 back surgeries, went in for one, ended up having 10, had the knees replaced, you know, after this was scoped five times, this was scoped six times, finally replaced and replaced the hips, got a bullet hole in my shoulder from a couple of bad shoulder surgeries. Holy shit. <clears throat> Abdominal surgeries, a couple surgeries in my face from, you know, because I would lead with my left and get kicked in the face a bunch of times. I had the orbital socket broken a couple times. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, nobody gave me the memo that stuff was fake. I missed, <laughs> I missed that memo. So, yeah. you know, plus I was running so hard the first 20 years. I was wrestling, you know, 400 times a day like Rick, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday. There was no rock, no Stone Cold, no John Cena. It was just me for like the first 20 years. So I I would hit Philadelphia Spectrum at one in the afternoon, sold out, hit Madison Square Garden that night, sold out, hit the Boston Garden Sunday afternoon, sold out, the LA Forum that night sold out. So I was doing two a days. Wow. And it just beat my body up so bad, you know. So how does that bug you to hear people with the narrative like it's fake when you're putting, when you're going through all these surgeries and you're just banged up? Not really. You know, they, you know, most people understand it's predetermined. We know mm-hmm. who's going to win or lose. So if mm-hmm. you want to call that fake, I, I don't even care anymore. Yeah. Back then, if somebody said it was fake, front chin lock, Richard Belzer, pass out half a million dollars later. Prove my point, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, we used to defend the business. You know, yeah. if someone said it was fake, you'd punch them right in the mouth back in the 70s and 80s. But then, you know, with all the commissions and stuff, when Vince deregulated wrestling and said it was an exhibition, whew, you know, you didn't have to fight every six foot 10 guy in a bar that said it was fake, you know? Sure, brother, whatever you say, man, you know? Was that something that you guys chose to do to defend it? Or were you guys like told to like? Well, when I broke in the business, I didn't go like to, uh, you know, um, what's the name of the place in Orlando? Jesus, I can't even think of it. Performance Center. I didn't, yeah, NXT, thank you. I didn't go to NXT, the Performance Center. I was playing in a rock and roll band. I had long hair, real long blonde hair, and I wanted to be a wrestler. And I went in and they exercised me until I was getting ready to faint. They threw me in the ring. A guy put an elbow in my shin, grabbed my toe, posted my leg and broke my leg the first day and said, don't ever come back again. Then I went home and my dad kicked my ass worse. Then I cut my hair real short like yours. And I went back 
with the attitude that never, nobody's ever going to hurt me again. So that was the mindset and the mentality when I got in in the 70s and 80s. You know, at the WWE Performance Center now, they take real good care of the athletes. And when you're doing four roles, you have helmets on, you know, and you take your time learning the business and nobody gets beat up or nobody gets stretched or hooked or submitted. And so it's a different business now. But when I first started, if you were a professional wrestler and you got your ass kicked in the bar, you were in a lot of trouble. You know, because you had to protect and defend the business. So that was the barbaric mindset at the time. Wow. That must be wild. so But I was different. like 77, bro, when I got yeah. in. Because I quit playing music in 75. So way before you were born, I was doing this shit. Way before, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the music. Yeah. You were in a band, weren't you? Yeah. Didn't, did you play? I saw something that said you, like, played with Metallica or? No, I tried to get in the band. Actually, it started with the Rolling Stones. What? <laughs> because... <laughs> I played music, you know, for 10 years and was a, was a studio musician with Century Artists out of Atlanta. So I played music for 10 years and I kept playing the same clubs. Then when I come back from Florida, there's a place called the Rockaway Grill up the beach. I'd play there. There were skips on the beach down there in Madeira Beach. I was the only guy that ever played naked for two hours on the stage there. So we're going to forget about that statement. <laughs> it was a dare. So I kept playing music and, and playing music. What was the question? Uh, about Metallica. Metallica. And so once I got in the wrestling business, this is kind of like a long story. Is it okay? Yeah, you're sure. Good. Got in the wrestling business. I was wrestling at Wembley Stadium. Um, Make-A-Wish kid came to see me because at the time I was seeing more kids than Mickey Mouse or Mr. T. I was before John Cena came around, I was the guy. And, you know, I was seeing all these Make-A-Wish kids. And the kid came back at Wembley and he was in bad shape, bro. He was on a vent. The medics were with him. He was freaking out. Hygienically, you could tell he wasn't really being taken care of correctly, but the parents were marking out and the parents were coming at me real strong. I was trying to take care of the kid. And I kind of told the medics, guys, <clears throat> the kid's panicking. You kind of like need to ease him out of here. So the kid left. I went out and wrestled and I had a place for him and his parents. I wrestled in Wembley Stadium, 80,000 people. No kid, no kid. So I went back and I said, what happened to the family? Well, the kid had passed away by the time I saw him and by the time I wrestled. So my manager, Jimmy Hart at the time, who was with the Gentrys, who was a musician, had a hit song, Keep On Dancing. It was the only number one song. We stayed up and we wrote 12 songs with a harp, one of those harpsichord things that Jimmy played, like little kids' songs, Hulkamaniac in Heaven, Beach Patrol, all these little songs. And um, a guy named Simon Cowell produced the album. Oh, wow. So then when the album went to Billboard and it went to number one for quite a while, Simon Cowell came back to me. He said, look, bro, I want you to do a song um, by our Elvis and Presley, Elvis Presley type guy over here named Gary Glitter. He was a transvestite, you know, but he was like Elvis over there. So we had a song called Leader of the Gang. So I went in and I cut the song with a band called Green Jelly, you know, and that song took off. So that's kind of like the little music thing. But then I'm getting to Metallica. Yeah, yeah. But then once I got back to Connecticut, when I was living up there, after I'd been fired and I came back to work in 84, down the street from me, Cindy Lauper lived. So I reeled her and Dave Wolf in. I said, let's recut some music because I knew Rick Derringer, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coof. You, know, you guys didn't even know the I heard songs. the name. I heard the name. Okay. Well, he wrote, he did Real American, my theme song. But anyway, I get Cindy Lauper and Rick Derringer. We recut Land of a Thousand Dances, recut a couple songs, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coof. And I can't remember something else. And brought Simon Cowell over to produce it and it went platinum, bang. 
So then we decided, let's do another wrestling album called Pal Driver. Brought Simon Cowell over. Boom, produced it went platinum. He never left. And Simon stayed here because he started working with the WWE. Fast forward, I go to an award show in the UK. And who am I presenting with? A lady named Jerry Hall, who was living with Mick Jagger at the time. <clears throat> so the bass player just quit. So I said, oh, my God. I quit wrestling in a heartbeat to be in the Rolling Stones. You know? Yeah, fuck yeah. So she asked me for a bunch of merchandise for her kids. You know? And I said, oh, yeah, I can send you whatever you want. And so I, there was my aunt. I said, oh, by the way, I used to play bass. Could I send your husband a tape? You know, I'd love to be in the Rolling Stones. She goes, yeah, yeah, send me the tape. Sent the tape, never heard a word. Okay? Wow. <clears throat> Fast forward, Metallica needs a bass player, right? <laughs> I go, holy smokes, Metallica. I could be in Metallica? Did an audition tape, put a tape together, sent it to the band, never heard a word from them. But that was it. They don't even respond. No, they well, didn't even, dude. dude, I was Hulk Hogan too, man. I was a yeah, champion of the world. They didn't even call me back. The Stones are the biggest band in the world at that point, for sure, right? Yeah. Like the, the bar is pretty high. Oh, yeah. So, but, I mean, you how, shoot for the, you know, you the have stars. To. Were you talented enough to do it, you think? Do you not, think they saw it? I don't know. I know anything the Stones <laughs> played, I could play. Yeah. Metallica. A little more difficult. I could play almost everything they played, but the new bass player they have, shoot, bro, I couldn't even lace his boots up. He is yeah. so fucking good. Damn. I'm surprised you never met them. Uh-uh. Never met them, never heard back from any of them. Didn't, didn't One Direction ask you to do a song or something? I don't remember. I, I saw remember. I saw like NBC. Yeah. NBC was trying to push they wanted that. They wanted you to play like bass for One Direction. <laughs> don't remember? Do you know who Dude. those guys are? Yeah. Would you consider So maybe that? they sent you a tape and you just didn't even fucking get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, That's probably why they broke up. I've been hitting up. Hey, easy, brother. <laughs> I've been hitting the head with too many steel chairs. I don't remember that one. So after the music didn't go the way you wanted it to, then you just focus on wrestling? Well, I was always focused on wrestling, but, you know, I was a cheap hoe, man. I was, I'd, I'd, I'd have loved to have been in the Rolling Stones and Metallica. Come on. Yeah, that would have been sick. Yeah. yeah, you have to give up. To be with the Stones, you gotta. There's no other choice. Well, I figured I've been fired from wrestling so many times. I've quit so many times. It'd be just another glitch in the system. I could always go back. Right. You That's know? crazy. You did so much. You also played like baseball. You were nasty. Like when you were younger too. You almost. You almost went pro. I was scouted in tenth uh, and eleventh grade by the Cincinnati Reds and uh, New York Yankees, but I broke my arm. I pitched and played third base, and a guy stepped outside the box, and he hit the ball on the handle, it dribbled down the third baseline. And as I ran, the bases were loaded, we were, came up on the infield. And as the ball dribbled down the third baseline, I picked it up and I threw it underhanded to first base. And I broke that cap off my elbow just by throwing the ball awkwardly off, off balance. <clears throat> and so they had they put a cast on my arm and that cap went back on. But I had an overhand fastball and an overhand drop ball that was nobody could hit because I was like a big kid in high school. And I, could, I was really good, you know, throwing a fastball and overhand drop ball that would come at you the same way and drop off at the last minute. But um, after that, my pitching arm was screwed from third base. I didn't have the same arm. And so they put me in the outfield, and I just wasn't into it. So at that point, I was kind of like taking guitar lessons and playing in garage bands and going up to the University of Gainesville and all these <laughs> different colleges and playing for the soror sororities and and all the parties, you know, and was making really good money in high school. And I went, eh, I'll be a long haired hippie and make money playing music. Yeah. 
So that was it for baseball. How's it? How's your health now? I mean, you look amazing. I'm cool, 26 man. 26 surgeries. Like, how do you feel? I'm cool. You know, it's just when you get about that far away from 70, like Rick Flair, and I talked to him, he said, he's fine. He says, nothing hurts. I'm like, how in the hell is that possible? Mm-hmm. How can nothing hurt? You know, he hasn't had all the surgeries, you know, I know he broke his back in the plane crash and that pretty much was devastating. It took him a while to regroup from that. But, um, you ever think about quitting when you're just fucking going through all this shit with your body? Well, back then, you know, I, it wasn't quitting. It was drinking a couple more beers and you a couple more pain pills and you're good. Yeah. <laughs> right. You rock on brother. You yeah. Know, you're way good. Back in the day, we, nobody would quit. I mean, if you broke your thumb or you got your teeth knocked out or your nose was broken, you were at an afternoon show, you know, you can't go to Madison Square Garden and go, I broke my thumb. I can't wrestle. I don't want to hear that shit. Right. You know? What do you think is the biggest difference now, like from back then to, to now, the WWE? The biggest difference? Um, you know, I, I don't want to knock the product, you know, and be the old timer. This is back in the day, kid, when I was wrestling. I want to go there. But I think the biggest difference, if I really had to choose, would be two things. The internet stuff, you know, because... I sold a ton of merchandise with no internet, you know, with no Amazon or any of that stuff. You know, it was, it was venue, venue related right. and mail order stuff. So I sold a ton of merchandise over the years doing my things and it's still selling like crazy. So I think the internet is the biggest difference. And I think the main thing with the product is instead of having an attraction like a Hulk Hogan, yeah. Who you can put with this guy or that guy or him or you or the one man gang or that guy or a giraffe and just sell out anything instead of having that one attraction like a Hulk Hogan or a rock or an Andre the Giant or a Stone Cold Steve Austin instead of having that one guy that's really the attraction. I think star now is the production in the show, mm-hmm. you know, because I see the guys wrestle and if one gets hurt, you know. There's another one from the performance center that slides right in and takes his place. And they're all the same size and pretty much have the same color hair and kind of like their clothes are made by the same seamstress and they learn how to wrestle from the same group of trainers. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I get into business, we all learn from wrestling every night, you know, and being in the ring and getting your ass beat and get hurt. We learn that way where we weren't doing forward rolls with helmets on and doctors and massagers and trainers and, you know, if you hurt your thumb, you go put you in the x-ray machine. Got to take four weeks off. You broke your nail. So I, it's different now, you know? Yeah. yeah. Back in the day, it was, you know, getting the car shut the hell up. And you're, you're opening the beers. I'm driving. Yeah. What, what created such that, like, party culture with the WWE? Was that just, like, you guys? Or was it, like, it seemed like all you <coughs> guys were just. Yeah. No, it wasn't, it wasn't the WWE. It was the wrestling business. Right. It was, it was. When I got in, man, there, you know, when I walked in a dressing room, there were like six guys sitting there. They were all 300 pounders. I was a medium sized guy and I weighed 300 plus, but I was a medium sized guy. And when I got in, if you want to be a wrestler, okay, there's a guy there. He's got two big cauliflower ears. His nose is broken. His teeth are knocked out and he's got four kids at home. You know, this next guy over here was an NCAA champion. You know, he's got a steel plate in his forearm. His name's Harley Race. And, you know, good luck with him. Then the other two guys there look like serial killers. And if you <laughs> want to be a wrestler, you got to take their job and take the food out of their family's mouth. 
that's the difference. Everybody I wrestled looked like monster size, you know, men. Nowadays, there's a lot of guys that look like wrestlers and a lot of guys that don't. A lot of guys that look like wrestlers and a lot of guys that look like they should be bagging my groceries. You know, so the difference is how athletic the guys are. You know, the smaller guys can do all kind of crazy stuff. They do so much stuff, so much impressive stuff in one match. I wouldn't do that much in a year. But what does it mean? You know? Yeah. One thing we talked about, like we touched on with Rick that I want to ask you is back then, it, your persona, there were so many characters. So like you would have, you'd create a huge fan base and you had your unique personality. But that's not, it doesn't seem like that's even a thing anymore. Boys, this episode is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is an all-in-one e-commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. If you're inspired to start a new business venture this year, you guys gotta try Shopify. Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your in-person or e-commerce business without the struggle. Shopify is the global e-commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. So whether you're offering custom stickers from Shopify's in-person POS system or selling sunglasses on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are in good hands. By now it's clear, you boys know that I love Shopify. We've used Shopify's e-commerce platform from the very beginning to sell full send and happy die gear hosted on our website. My favorite thing about Shopify is no matter how big you wanna grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. They're truly a global force powering millions of entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. So boys, if you're thinking of starting a business, doing anything, get something going, you can go to shopify.com slash full send and sign up for a $1 per month trial, period. So all lowercase, go to shopify.com slash full send and take your business to the next level today. Well, it's different. It's, it's what, uh, what goes back to, I was talking about being an attraction. You know, you have the same, you got 25 writers, yeah. you know, that write for you. And I'm not trying to be an asshole. But you develop your character. That's you, right? Yeah. I mean, and no one told me how to be Hulk Hogan or yeah. came up with any of that stuff. I came up with all that stuff myself. So even, you know, with the WWE now, when I go back and I host a WrestleMania or when I open the show for the 30th anniversary of Raw, I'm getting ready to walk out. I mean, I'm in the grill position. I'm getting ready to go through the curtains. And there's 20,000 people out there. And the last time I was in Philadelphia, I was a bad guy, right? So I don't know what I'm going to get when I walk out there. Now I get the red and yellow on. All of a sudden, I'm a good guy, guy, and I'm walking out. And when I'm getting ready to walk out, a writer comes over and hands me a bunch of papers that just came out of a printer, and they're hot. I hold the papers up. I said, Vince, really? Are you kidding? He goes, nah, just do what you want. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> I just throw the papers up and just walk out and do what I want because he knows me well enough that I'm not going to shit the bed. You know what I'm saying? I've done this a couple times. So it's different now, you know, but I do have respect for the writers because they do help a lot of the guys that can't come up with their own characters or don't come up with the right thing. And, you know, they hit and miss, you know, some, a lot of the stuff is really good. And some of the stuff is eh, so, so. Are you able to talk at all about like how the predetermination happens? Like, is that based on fans? Is it all Vince? Is it like the, the wrestlers have any say? I'm not really sure how the predetermined outcome 
is made. I mean, I was in the office for a lot of years with Vince. When his dad fired me, I disappeared for about three or four years. And then when I went back and beat the Iron Sheik, Vince was running the company. And I lived up in Greenwich, Stanford, right next to him. So I was in the office every day. And basically, we really didn't worry about win or losing. We'd look at a venue like the Philadelphia Spectrum. Look at the talent list because we were running three towns a night, a Hulk Hogan town, like a Sergeant Slaughter town, and then maybe a Paul Orndorff town. And, you know, as a talent would get their booking sheets, they would want to be on the A town because, you know, like if I was wrestling the one man gang and you're in the opening match with me, you might make three or four grand. If you were on the other card, like with Sergeant Slaughter or with Paul Orndorff, you're in the opening match, you might make $300. You know, there's a big difference on in yeah. what was being drawn at the time because I was kind of like an attraction and everybody else was trying to figure their shit out. And so when we were in the booking meetings, we really didn't care that much about who won or lost, but what we cared about was, okay, if I wrestle the one-man gang in Philadelphia, how can we get more than one out of us? Okay, so if the one-man beats gang beats me on a disqualification, I don't lose any stroke. You know, he hit me with a pair of brass knuckles when the referee was trying to take the brass knuckles. He dropped the referee and he got disqualified. And then we can come back again, you know, and then all of a sudden we come back in the Philadelphia spectrum and there's a double count out because whatever happens, we maybe we both get handcuffed to the, the ring girl. Who knows? I'm just talking shit. And then we come back in a steel cage and we blow it off and I leave him laying in a pool of blood. I climb out of the cage so you can get three $400,000 gates out of one opponent instead of just getting one, you know, and then what do we do the next time we come back to Philly? So it was more about the storytelling, which, which kind of like determined who would win or lose. You know, it really wasn't, it really wasn't that much the character driven or who's the biggest attraction, but there were certain guys you didn't want to beat for a long time. You know, there were certain guys that if you beat them and they were their lead and they were your lead dog, if you beat them, they might not shine or they might not draw anymore. That's my thing. You know, if somebody's got that magic dust or they have the it factor, let them roll, brother. Let them roll, you know. Forget the ego. How did your, like, business relationship evolve with, like, the WWE? Like, you say, like, w if that guy's winning, like, we were making money. Were you, like, getting a cut of, like, the whole thing at one point? Or, like, how did that evolve? Well, I always worked on a percentage, you know. And, uh... My deal is a little bit different than most people. I mean, I worked for Vince Sr. first, you know, from 78 to about 80, I worked for Vince Sr. So I was kind of like his guy for a while. And, you know, I was kind of wild in the streets. I didn't listen very well. You know, I would disappear and make some money and pull no shows. I mean, I was like 27, 28 years old, man. I was nuts, yeah. you know. So I was running hard back then. I wasn't married. So I pretty much was doing whatever I wanted to do. And, yeah. you know, I kind of like got involved with Vince and everybody says, oh, this business is a work. Okay. Well, if I'm making twice as much money as you and you're wrestling me, is that a work? That's a fucking shoot, brother. And that's how I looked at it. This business was a shoot. It was the man that made the most money. So when I worked for Vince and Bob Backlund was a champion, oh, I wrestled Backlund. Backlund always got paid more than me. I said, oh, really? Hmm, so this is no work. So it does matter if you win or lose. It does matter if you're the champion or not. Everybody goes, oh, it's a work. Well, it's really not a work. You know, it's about the money and the mileage. And for me, 
you know, if you're a good guy, usually until the NWO came along back in the day, if you're a good guy, your merchandise sold two to one over the bad guy stuff. Hmm. That's not a work to me. That's a shoot, brother. If I'm making more money than you and I'm wrestling you, my t-shirt's selling twice as much as yours. Maybe it's a work to you, but not to me. Mm-hmm. You know, if my check's double yours. So I always looked at it that way. So when Vince Sr. fired me and I came back years later. And Why did he fire you? For doing the Rocky movie. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, he just didn't want me to be an actor. So you had no support when you went to, you decided to do that? <clears throat> like, did they tell, try and stop you from doing that? Well, they just told me that if you go to the movie, you're, you're going to be fired and you'll never work here again. Why? So, yeah, so what was their logic? Just They didn't want They you just to- didn't want me. They had plans for me, you know? And they were trying to groom me and get me to fit into this pocket they wanted me in, you know? And uh, I just had different ideas. I mean, I had a deal in Japan. I was more popular in Japan than I was here. Mm-hmm. And I got to actually wrestle over there. It wasn't like the ear stuff, you know? I get to actually get down and wrestle. And so when I was younger, that was fun. It sounds like you tried to get into a lot of different things. Music, you played baseball, and then you moved to Hollywood for a little bit, right? Well, no, bro. I just would do anything to avoid working a real job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just didn't dig working for people. What did Rocky Three do for you as like getting into Hollywood and kind of becoming an actor? It, it kind of like, it helped the wrestling more than it did the acting stuff because, um, you know, uh, when I got on the screen, first off, I was a big Rocky fan. Yeah. So when I saw Rocky one and Rocky two, I went, Oh my God, he's like 700 feet tall in the American public's eyes. He was like the biggest star driven character I'd ever seen. You know, I said, Oh my God, I'd love to s- sweep the floor in a Rocky. Movie. Do you have to audition for that too? Yes. And no. Um, I was at least to shoot TV every three weeks in Allentown and Reading. And when I was there with Vince senior grill monsoon handed me a, the wrestlers always played ribs. They'd tie your shoelaces together, cut your pants up, or, you know, put locks all over your bag or do even worse stuff to you. So they were always giving me a hard time, you know, for some reason. And so all of a sudden when Gorilla Monsoon came back and handed me a note, very important, called Sylvester Sloan about Rocky movie, I went, yeah, right. So I took off, went to Japan for eight weeks, you know. <laughs> and then when I came, I was only supposed to stay four weeks, but I stayed eight. I had a hot girl over there. I was dating at really? the time. Yeah, brother. She was... Fuck. We want to go Wait, to Japan. like a Japan, like a local in Japan? Well, I went over there to shoot a video with a band called Pink Cloud, you know? I don't. And I, and I, well, there were, a, there were a local band in Tokyo that was red hot, and I did a couple albums in Japan. Okay. And you met a chick there? Well, I, I needed some models. So there was a Ford modeling agency, and there was the Folio modeling agency. And when I called the Ford modeling agency, I couldn't understand a word the lady was saying. And when I called Folio, this lady answered the phone that spoke perfect English. And she goes, well, I've got like a, a, a folder of my models. She goes, I can meet you for lunch in downtown Shinjuku if you want at the Lexington Queen as a, a party place. I said, okay, I'll meet you there tomorrow. So when we met, this like five foot 10, gorgeous Japanese girl walked in and she was built like some American supermodel. Went, oh my God. And she put the book down, she spoke perfect English, you know? And I just was like, okay, this could work. <laughs> you know, so we started talking and started talking and she had all the hookups for all the concerts and because of the modeling agency, you know, like if the Rolling Stones came for yeah. instance, she had backstage tickets. And she had all the other gimmicks too that wrestlers like to party with back in the day. So, you know, <laughs> her and I just meshed real well, you know. 
So that's dope. Yeah, that's how I met her over there. But I was over there actually doing some, some, some music and stuff at the time. And uh, why do you, why do you think you had such a big fan base in Japan? Well, one of the reasons was you know back to the music stuff. They just like we had Elvis Presley. Yeah. And they had that Gary Glitter guy I talked about in uh, UK. In Japan, they had a Japanese singer that bleached his hair out blonde and white like Ric Flair's, right? Yeah. So they knew my backstory because the guy that broke my leg was here on Matsuda. Oh, okay. Who was one of the really good shooters in Japan, like the UFC-type shooter guys. Yeah, yeah. More, even more than that, you know, the, the hooks, the breaking of the bones, that's what Matsuda was good at. So he's the one that broke my leg originally, and we became very close friends. And everybody in Japan knew I was broken in by Matsuda. So I had this mystique when I went over there that I was one of Matsuda's boys, you know. And so when I went there, I went, oh, my gosh, he plays in a rock and roll band, too. And they equated me to their singer, the guy with the bleached out hair, the Japanese guy, whoever the hell he was. So I started getting approached by, you know, different people in, in Japan to do music. Oh, wow. So I did a couple bullshit albums over there that sold. And <laughs> you can get them on the Internet. But they suck. And uh, so that's kind of how the whole thing rolled out. So when I went there. I was I, I was kind of freaked out because I had Fred Blassie with me. I don't know if you know who he is or not, but he used to be one of the managers in New York. And they had Fred Blassie and the Grand Wizard and Lou Albano mm. back in the day. And Fred Blassie used to go to Japan back in the day and wrestled a, a mafia guy named Ricky Dozan. And so what Blassie would do, he had false teeth. He had a set of teeth that he would eat with, and he had a set of teeth that he would file on TV. And what he would do is he'd bite the Japanese guys in the head and suck their blood out of their head and then spit back in their faces. Fuck, in the and, ring? In the ring. And TV Suck Asa the blood out of their head? Yeah. How do you do that? What? Where is this airing? This it's is on, on TV Asai in Japan, bro. And he's fucking biting into his head and sucking the blood out. Yeah. But is the other guy aware of that? Oh, yeah. How do you agree to that? You haven't seen TNA wrestling in the last couple of weeks? They've been stapling people's mouths together. Then the guy takes pliers and pulls them out. Jesus Christ, Come on, man. You guys need to get with the program here, man. Are you well, kidding? I know your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm anyway, not. so anyway, I go over with Fred Blassie, and he's a legend. So now I'm broken in by Masuda. The, the, the Japanese people are equating, equating me with this rock and roll hero because simply because I play a little music. And now I'm over there with Fred Blassie, the You're legend. Up, yeah. So I'm walking in. I'm totally hooked up. I'm looking through the curtains the very first night, and I get a guy named Ricky Choshu who just won two gold medals in the Olympics. And I'm watching the first and second match going, holy shit. I'm watching these guys wrestle for New Japan Pro Wrestling. I'm thinking, this is, this is a shoot, bro. These guys are out there going. I mean, it's not like what you see here. These guys are really pulling and tugging. And I looked out there, and I got sick to my stomach, man, because I was like the fourth match. And I got this guy that's a, a gold medalist that I got to wrestle. I'll get Fred Blassie. I go, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I can't wrestle like that. He goes, just go fucking knock him out. I went, what? <laughs> Blassie goes, just knock him out. I said, are you kidding? Fred goes, yeah, just knock him out. I went, okay. So I get out there and I get him real close to the ropes. When I threw him off, I followed him in. I caught him right in the temple. I can uppercut with my elbow. My career was made in Japan from that day forward. Holy shit, bro. Yeah. So, I mean, no it's way. like, it's either that or get my ass handed to me. Yeah. And in Japan, you got to just kind of do what you got to do, right? It's a different game over there, especially during the late 70s, bro. People don't realize Japan now and this new Japan thing and the Bullet Club is cool. But you go over there in 77, 78, you better be ready. 
I feel like everything was just better back then. It was just more intense. It was more of a gut check. But just like the party scene, like every time we get to hear stories about the 70s or the 80s, it just sounds so dope. Yeah. That's why everybody's dead. People are less. (laughs) (laughs) Was there ever anything that they came to you, they wanted you to do that you were like, I can't do this one? No, but I did get um, handed a bad deal one night. And a guy named John Tenta, you probably don't remember him. He was in the WWE as wrestled as, as Earthquake. Okay. And he was part of the Twin Towers with, gosh, this is back in the 80s. If you guys weren't watching back then, you wouldn't even know. But anyway, John Tenta was from Vancouver. And he was like 460 pounds. He was an ex-sumo wrestler. So when you go in the dressing room every night, the card would be written. And there would be, I, I could read Hogan in Japanese, of course. And then there would be a Japanese name next to me. I never knew who the hell I was re- wrestling. So I have to get. Uh, Tiger Hattori or the bus driver Agasaka to tell me who I was wrestling because you never knew till you got there. And they had a new guy that just came in from the, the sumo business, wrestling business. And there was a guy in the great Kabuki and he was in the dressing room next door and he just beat up the, uh, the booker because they wanted this kid that was a few years younger than me that had trained in sumo and he's way over 400 pounds to put me over you know, predetermined in Japan to put me over. And he said, no. So him and the booker got in a, a big fight. He beat up a couple of wrestlers over there. And, okay. You know, my turn. Now I got to get this guy. John Tenta goes, no, you're my champion, Hogan. I'll take care of this. I went, okay. <laughs> Thank God. So he went out there and the first thing that happened was that sumo wrestler was there then with Tenta, who was an ex sumo wrestler. And I was watching the first thing he did was try to hook his eye and pull his eye. Fuck, bro. And it, and it pissed John Tenta off. And he just drugged that guy around like a rag doll. I was in the dressing room going, thank God that wasn't me. Damn, you know? son, this is way more brutal. This is a different time, brother. Well, okay, so well then let's let's transition into when when you slammed Andre the Giant. Yeah. When were you like, what, how did that come about? And like, were you told before, like, Hey, you're going to like slam him where you come? No, no, bro. It didn't work that way. Um, the way we used to wrestle was the referee would come over and say, you're going to, you're going to beat me tonight. That'd be it. See in the ring. That's how it worked, especially with Andre, you know, and I did kind of irritate him a little bit, you know, usually. They would come over to me or Andre and say, okay, you're going to beat Hogan tonight or Hogan's going to get counted out. I'd never beaten Giant before. And there's no shame in getting beat by him because no one had ever beaten him. But, um, you know, Vince McMahon, I asked Vince, I said, well, you know, here we are the night before. What are we doing tomorrow? Vince goes, I don't know. But he goes, I'm sure Andre will do the right thing. I'm going, oh, great. Okay. So Vince wanted me to sit in the dressing room with Andre just to try to like make things cool, you know? And so I get to the building at noon and I sat next to Andre and I watched him drink three fifths of Crown Royal. Okay. Three what? Three fifths of Crown three Royal. Three separate bottles, right? Yeah. What? I was sitting there at noon with him and he kept pouring me shots. And every time he wasn't looking, I'd dump that shit, man. Because if I drank with him, I wouldn't even be able to find my ass, much less the ring. And so I sat there with him all day and his back was hurting him and you know, he had some medication for his back and he just came off a huge surgery over in the UK where they had to make the tools and they had to make the bed and he was in really bad shape. He was hurting. 
And so, because I was so nervous, I figured if we really screwed this up, this was WrestleMania three and everything was on the line, you know, and we put a couple million bucks up to secure the building and everything Vince had was mortgaged. And we already had the building. We were a couple of weeks in and the, the, the building, the guy that ran the building called us and said, you need to cancel the event because the Rolling Stones are there the week before you. Then you get WrestleMania. Then after that, the Pope was here. So the week before the Stones did 88,000, the Pope did 80,000. We did 94. So thank God we didn't cancel. <laughs> but when I was sitting in the back with Andre, I was afraid that if WrestleMania sucked or the main event sucked, that would be it for the WWF or WWE, whatever you want to call it. And so I sat next to Andre all day. Hey, boss, what do you want to do? Don't worry. <laughs> okay, I'm not worrying. Hey, boss, maybe later, me go up or me go down. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, man. Andre, what do you think? Maybe we get things going in there and we get a little rhythm, maybe, maybe one slam if you're going to beat me. Don't worry. Okay, I'm worried. So we go to the ring. I don't know the finish. I don't know shit. All I know is I need to keep him close to the ropes because if you're in the middle of the ring, he can't stand up by himself without pulling himself up. So, you know, I get him in the ring and actually placement and maneuvering him around. If you ever watch the match, I keep him close to the ropes. And then um, and then there was, there was a spot in the match where when we got going, I don't know, I can't remember right now. I ran into him. I ran into him. Something happened. He didn't go down. He stayed close to the ropes. And I was backing off. He went, slam. And that voice there was just yelled, slam. And he was just coming at me. You know, I tried earlier in the match, like 10 seconds in the match to pick him up. And I fell backwards. He almost broke my neck because he landed on top of me and didn't really protect me. You know, he squashed me. And I barely got out from under him right in the very beginning. I went, oh, shit. He's not going for this today. So all of a sudden, when the match was almost over, he goes, slam. And I thought I heard what I heard. And as he came towards me, I took a step back and scooped him, but then got his momentum, and I barely got him over. And then I went and I dropped the leg, thinking that he was going to kick out, and he didn't kick out. Did you fuck it? You fucked yourself up on that? Yeah, I tore my back. I got a hole in my back still from that shit. 620 pounds? Yeah. God damn. What, what, what happened after that? Because that was a huge moment. Well, after that, you know, we went back to the dressing room, and he was, he was hurting pretty bad. And, uh, you know, him and I had become really good friends at that point where the last 10 or 12 years, we were really, really close before that we had some major issues. But, um, at that point, you know, when I realized what he had done for me, mm -hmm. I mean, he just made my career there, brother. I mean, that, that was like, I was on a roll anyway. That was like hitting double nitrous buttons for me. Yeah. I mean, that, that just, that was it, you know? And so. Shoot, I was back there worried about him if he was hurt. I was back there crying like a baby. I was so upset, you know, that this whole thing had happened. It was just like a major. I mean, if you were in my shoes and someone was to do that for you, I mean, it's just there's nobody around like him. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there was never anybody around like this guy. And if he wanted to beat your ass, he could have done it. Mm. There's nobody in this business or any business around that could have beat that man. Yeah. I don't give a shit who you are. Is Vince like the type of guy to come back and be fired up with what just happened? What do you mean? Like, is Vince coming back like, yo, like fired up? Like, can't believe that just happened? Oh, he was excited. He knew we pulled a rabbit out of the hat. It could have went the other way because Andre was hurt real bad. <clears throat> you know, I was, I would always work my gimmick, my character. I could wrestle anybody. 
I could wrestle Bret Hart. I could wrestle the one man gang. I could wrestle Andre. I, I could wrestle Jake Snake because I have a way of maneuvering the character around with placement and timing and a cadence, which it's an instinct. It's something that you, you hear, you know, with your ear and you listen with your heart, you listen to the crowd and nobody does. It's an art form mm -hmm. that nobody does anymore. And for me to be in there with Andre, it was a one dimensional big man match. And with me being limited physically, yeah, because I'm not the greatest technical wrestler as far as entertainment goes like in japan i was a much better technical wrestler because I, I could actually get on the ground and wrestle we're here they wanted me to stay up and be this hero and it's hard being this character and being that limited and then being in with a guy that's bigger than you that's even more limited so <clears throat> i hate to keep using the term but there was a damn good chance we could have shit the bed that night yeah and ruined everything but we took our time cadence timing cadence timing one big blow let's go home it worked wow you know that's crazy it's it's there's a lot more to it than what people people understand you know i mean yeah. the whole concept though is insane Just yeah it was a little a big over the guy top. and he's such a legend like that yeah and he did me a huge favor i can't even explain it to you in this room did he say anything to you after yeah yeah he was cool man he goes i always wanted to do that for you you proved you know that you were a good person because he did not like me at all at first why is that? I was stupid, man. I was just young. I was 340 pounds, 345 pounds, all jacked up on steroids and shit, just thinking I could beat him. Yeah. You know, and I'd run at him wide open. Calm down. Boom, he'd just bitch slap the hell out of me, you know? I'd bring a girl to the arena. He'd pick me up by my tights like a stork with my balls and ass hanging around, carrying <laughs> me like a, like a kid in diapers just to teach me a lesson, you know? Don't no more girls at ringside. You're showing off. Okay, okay, I get it. I won't do it anymore. Why was that? An, that was the rule. No, but he knew that if I had a girl at ringside, I'd do everything I could to trick him to get outside the ring so I could attack him in front of her, and act like <laughs> a badass. And he used to just piss him. Damn, off. that could be a play though. That, yeah, yeah, dude, it worked. Yeah. It worked. With the best match was after the match. Yeah, for sure. It worked. <laughs> It worked, for sure, that but night. I would get my ass beat for doing that shit, you know, yeah. but I was young and stupid. I was, you know, crazy and I wasn't afraid of him. You know, I thought I actually thought I was so stupid up here. I thought I could beat him. Who was your biggest like personal beef with outside the ring? Outside the ring? Well, it was, it was two guys. It was macho, man. And we, he lived on the beach here. We were together every single day. And then when he went through a divorce, <clears throat> he thought I had something to do with it. And so that turned out to be like an eight year, you know, don't talk to each other thing, which we finally became, we finally got on the same page about six months before he passed away, thank God. And then other than that, um, the only other person I really had, a, well, there's two guys. Um, the other, only other person was Bret Hart, who thought I basically sabotaged his career because Bret thought he should have been the greatest wrestler that ever lived. And it, he said it was my fault, okay. And then the only other third guy is uh, Scott Steiner, who I tried to help and no one would talk to him. Everybody was scared to death of him. So I was the one that always had to go talk to him and say, Scott, we need you to do the job. Oh, fuck, hugging shit. I don't do the job. I said, well, we want to keep figuring in, but if, if nobody wants to talk to you, so I'm here to try to talk to you about business. But if you don't want to do it, that's okay. We'll get somebody else to do it, you know? And those three guys, um, I, I mean, I, I got nothing but love for those guys, but for some reason they thought I kind of like sabotaged their career. That, that just happens when you become as big as you were, right? I don't know, man. It's just, uh, 
it's just it's just different you know it's some guys see things differently some guys you know like the Bret Hart thing um I really didn't understand because when he got pissed at me you know we basically I won the belt from Yokozuna at a Wrestlemania where Bret lost and I Bret told me to go in the ring and wrestle him and I won the belt right after Bret wrestled him and then the deal was was for me to drop it back to Yokozuna and then Brett got in my face. He goes, hey, you're supposed to drop the belt to me. I said, no, I'm not. He goes, well, yeah, you are. So let's go let's talk to Vince then. Yeah. So we both went in and sat down and talked to Vince. And Vince looked at Brett and said, Brett, that's what you thought you heard. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So ever since then, he hated my guts and wanted to kill me. Then when he, then when Eric Bischoff asked me if I could work with him at WCW, I said, hell yeah, bring him in. I can work with anybody. All of a sudden, we had about eight or nine great matches. We got along great. We traveled together. We were eight or nine, ten good matches. And then when WCW was over, he hated me again. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, whatever. But it's just stuff like that, you know. It's pretty crazy, like with interesting. everybody's like drinking or whatever, partying, and then you have so much personality. How did Vince like keep everything together together? Yeah, he kind of grew into handling the situation. And you know, I was I for a long time I was kind of like um the bad news bearer guy. Like for instance, if I went to Philadelphia and I was gonna wrestle Paul Orndorff, same situation, Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful. And we'd planned on coming back three times. If Vince wanted me to beat him with the leg drop the very first time, it really didn't make sense. But as soon as Paul got beat, I was going to start posing. And when Paul started going down the aisle, he was going to do the slow burn and turn around, get my belt and clock me with the belt, beat the crap into me and land, leave me laying in a pool of blood so we could come back the next time. Okay? You know, I won the match. You left me laying. You beat my ass. So let's put it in a steel cage or a bull rope match or a lumberjack match. There's a bunch of ways to make things happen. So I'd go to Paul and I'd say, Paul, Vince wants to do this, drop the leg, beat, come, you know, beat you one, two, three, come back, get the heat, hit me with the belt, boom, get some color, leave me fucking land, brother. We're going to come back and sell it out again. No, I'm not putting you over. What do you mean you're not putting me over? Well, I don't want to lose one, two, three, dude. Well, okay, so I call Vince up. Hey, Vince, just talk to Mr. Wonderful. He says he doesn't want to do the job, one, two, three. Okay, well, then if you don't want to do the job, you figure it out. Great. You know, that's how it was in the beginning. Yeah. Hyper wouldn't do a job. Orndorff wouldn't do a job. The reason Macho Man Randy Savage was a champion so many times, he'd do business. If I said, brother, I need to beat you, you know, mm -hmm. he would be there. And then here's the belt. You know, I'm going to go do a couple of movies. Here's the belt. Go make a bunch of money. When I come back, I knew he'd drop the belt back to me. Yeah. But, you know, Vince didn't trust Piper or other guys who wouldn't do a job. So in Piper's later years, we became really good friends. I used to tease him all the time. I said, you made some money. But if you'd have done a job for me, brother, you know how much more money you would have made for your family? He goes, oh, Hogan, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, so I used to tease Roddy all the time because we did get really close the last five years. That's yeah. crazy that you're involved on like the business level like that. I didn't, I didn't want to be, bro. 
Was all wrestlers like that, or like? No, it was just me because at first, when me and Vince first started this take over the world thing, if a guy didn't want to do a job, Vince didn't have that ironclad fist in the beginning. But he smartened up and realized, man, when I tell these guys something, they need to do it. You know, otherwise everybody's replaceable. When that happened, I went, thank God, you know, I don't have to be the bearer of bad news anymore. That's that's interesting as fuck. And it only lasted for a couple of years. When I first started back in '84. It was like the lunatics were running the asylum. Believe me, it was nuts for a while. But Vince got a handle on it pretty quick. What was the best way to like stand out and just get the biggest fan base and be loved by WWE, WWF? Everybody had their own way of trying to get over. Um, I found out, you know, if you really want to get over, it's that old saying, you know, you do it first and ask for permission later to be forgiven later. Yeah. Because when I first went back in 84, they sold no merchandise, none. And when I was in Minnesota for three years, I was selling t-shirts and headbands. I was selling all kinds of merchandise, making crazy money. And when I went back in 84, they weren't selling any merchandise. And I was playing that Eye of the Tiger, that dun, 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 on the way to the ring in Minnesota when I was with the AWE and the place was electric. And I went back to Madison Square Garden and I said, hey man, can I play some interest music? Bad mistake. Asked Senior, he said no. So I ran to the sound guy, gave him 500 bucks, and said, crank this shit when I come out. What? And I figured if I got fired, I got fired, no big deal, who gave a shit anyway. And so, you know, he cranked the music, that Eye of the Tiger shit hit, and the roof blew off the garden. And guess what? Everybody wanted entrance music after that. Why would Vince Senior say no to that? Because they'd never done it before, bro. It was all old school. Respect, garden, boxing, ding, 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 all right, in this corner. Everything was mundane. Everything was by road. Everything was the way it always had been. Yeah. You know, nobody ever blasted music and blew the roof off the place. So how, how was it before you had a walkout and stuff? What's that? Like before you had a walkout in your song and your whole entrance, you guys just walked in. Like there was no music in? back in the day. That's crazy. That yeah, sucked. It almost sounds like a no brainer. That's what I thought. So, so then after that. Yeah, music- but it's easy to judge now. Yeah. You can sit here and judge now, but you guys weren't around back then. You know, shit just didn't happen like, you know, snap your fingers and play iTunes and, you know, go to the internet or whatever. Shit was different, man. It was a whole different train of respect and a line of respect that had been handed down for years and years and years. Vince McMahon's family, Vince McMahon Sr., his father and grandfather ran boxing in the garden. So there was a whole train of respect right. of that lineage, you know. So it's it's hard to explain. Yeah, no, that kind of makes sense, though. What, what, what was your relationship like with Vince throughout the years? Was there any ups and downs? Vince? It was a love-hate relationship. You know. He thought he knew best. I thought I knew best. So it was always a tug of war with me and him. But, you know, we seemed to click and make it work. Anything you could, like, specific things you could talk about? Disagreements? Movies. You know. Um, I thought things like taking a month off and doing a kid's movie or doing a right guard commercial or doing the cover of Sports Illustrated or doing a Super Bowl commercial would make me a bigger star. Which I think it would, no? I thought so. At the time, Vince disagreed. So I went and did it anyway. Was that like part of your deal? You couldn't do outside promo shit? Not really. You know, (laughs) I kind of, bro, I I did the best I could, man. You know, but there's some things you just know you got to do. Yeah. And you can feel it's right. And you know, if you didn't do it, you know, like if I didn't do the cover of Sports Illustrator, if I didn't do Rocky Three, 
it'll haunt me my whole life. Yeah. You know, it's not like I haven't been fired before either. Right, Darren? <laughs> I've been fired a few times. How many times have you been fired? Oh, God, I don't know, bro. I've quit three or four times, been fired three or four times. But they always let you come back. Well, yeah, eventually, you know, something will come up and we'll say we need to get the old man with the yellow boots back. Yeah. It's cool. I saw the Vince, uh, I think you may have said this or someone said that he worked like 24-7. Oh, it's brutal. There was times after a fight, it'd be 1 a.m., you guys would have a post-production meeting and then after that, he'd be like, okay, now we have to go out. Or go to the gym at 3 in the morning for a couple hours. And just get a pump in? Yeah, it's brutal. I didn't like to travel with him because he had a extended G4 or G5, whatever the hell it was. His his jet? Yeah. He says, well, just come up to Monday Night Raw with me and then we'll go back to Connecticut. <laughs> you know, and then I get on the plane. The next thing I know, I was headed to Japan. And the day after that, I was heading down to San Diego and then I was going to Connecticut. And I thought I was going to be able to come home. No, no, I need you to fly to Seattle with me. So I call my wife up, which I can't remember which one it was, but I call one of them up. And I, and I would say, you know, I was supposed to be gone a day, but you know, now I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've been gone 17 or 18 days. I'll oh get God. home as soon as I can. But I called it the slave ship because once you get on there, he wouldn't let you go home. You know? Did you ever call him out and be like, yeah? Yeah. I told him, I said, bro, I got to go home. What would he say to that? He said, oh, just come one more day. Come to the office. We need to book tomorrow. And then we got to shoot a TNT show. I'm like, oh, man, you know? So I, I actually did have a house in Connecticut. And I finally sold it just to get away from working so much. You know? Yeah. What what was it like with uh how how big was the female fan presence and like would you guys would they be at the fight or you would just see them after the fight? The you know the female fan presence was like you know it's just like the girls that were with the guys or the men that like wrestling it wasn't like a I don't remember like a huge female fan base I I noticed a difference once I started shooting a, a reality show whenever that was in the nineties. And when I started shooting a reality show with my family and they saw I was a father, a husband, a dad, you know, and that, you know, bills to pay, take the kids to school, cook breakfast in the morning for the kids. I noticed I developed a, a huge female fan base after that, you know, when I went back to wrestle in WCW, but in the early days, it wasn't uh, that predominant, you know? Yeah. Well, after I'm assuming the Japanese lady didn't work out. No, brother, she didn't. You know, that lasted for uh, three or four years. And then, uh, you know, I ran into somebody in California that I was hanging with. And when I broke the news to the Japanese lady, she didn't take it very well. And I, I actually left Japan and was uh, in California with this other girl for a while. And then when I flew back home to Tampa, my parents were still alive. Mm -hmm. And I, when I walked in the house, that Japanese girl was at my house. No, what? Oh, yeah. No. How? She flew from Japan and she's sitting at the dinner table in front of my mother and father. She's crying when I walked in. That's like a fucking movie, bro. It's gone, yeah, bro. It was horrible. Wait, crying. So she's how did crying she know to your she, parents? Yeah, how did she know where she was? I my parents what I did. And so I had a nephew. Did you guys watch the NWO at all? No. No, we you know you're did. part of that league. Yeah. Huh? The NWA league? The NWO. Oh, no. Wrestling. You guys didn't watch that shit either. How old are you, man? 28. Damn. 28, yeah. Damn. You guys missed all the good shit. Anyway. My nephew, Horace, my brother who passed away, his son, Michael Bolea, I named him Horace Hogan. He wrestled in Japan, and there's a company called FMW, which if you guys think the staple stuff is gross, you don't need to look that stuff up. But there's a company called FMW he worked for, and he was all gaffed up and scarred up from working for that company. But I brought him in 
uh, the NWO when I was working for Ted Turner. And when I walked in, I saw, saw that Japanese girl in my mother's house. And my dad, I about fainted, especially with the look my dad gave me. And uh, I called Horace and said, get your ass over here and get her out of here. So I had Horace come right over. He lived a couple blocks from my parents' house. He grabbed her and I never saw her again. And you pulled up with your new girlfriend? No, I was by myself, thank God. She was in California. I flew home to see my parents. Dude, that's like a scary How did she know where sight. you lived? I don't know. These wrestling girls know everything about you, man. Huh. When you walked in, you <laughs> did any part of you debate like, okay, maybe I need to <clears throat> smash one more time or no? No. Okay. No, when I walked in, I was scared to death, man. I was like, what in the F is she doing here? That would have been some crazy sex. Because it's such though. a different world. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. such a different world in Tokyo, Japan. <laughs> you never dream the girl even dating in Tokyo, Japan is going to end up talking to your parents. We live in Tampa, Florida. Dude, that freaked me right scary out. Scary as shit. fuck. Yeah. You saw, so, what was some of the scariest things you saw in the NWO? The scariest, like thing? malicious. Nothing malicious. Nothing. You said like the stapling thing. Like, oh anything. no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I thought you guys would have watched more wrestling than you have. You know, I just didn't know what your backgrounds were, or how old you were. Yeah. So I thought, as I'm talking about WrestleMania three and NWO, I thought you guys knew what the hell I was talking about. Yeah, no, we know that. WrestleMania three, of course. Yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> I was just trying to. No, get... but I'm just saying, like you said, you've seen some violent things just in the wrestling world. Yeah, like, I mean, the what's, lot of... what's some of the most gruesome things you think you saw? Well, some of the craziest stuff I've seen is the Hell in the Cell stuff with Mick Foley, which everybody's seen. You know, and uh, you know, see him, you know, go through the top of the cage and his tooth teeth come out through his top lip into his nose and stuff like that you know it's pretty amazing what do you think about like the jake the snake the snake biting randy savage that was strong you know i was there for that um jake did let the snake bite him first yeah can you tell us that whole story well we're shooting an angle you know and it wasn't my angle so i wasn't privy to all the ins and outs randy and jake kept it kind of close to the hip you know with with vince's blessings but all I knew was um, from, you know, because I was in the dressing room, I was watching what they were up to over in the other corner. From what I knew was Randy was real adamant about the snake being devenomized, brother. You know, you sure that snake doesn't have poison? <laughs> so Jake goes, I'll let it bite me first. So it bit Jake first. And the snake, you know, got pulled away real easy. But in the ring, I don't know if Jake shook him up or slapped the snake around. I don't know why the snake was so aggressive, but when that python you know, latched onto Randy's forearm. I was sitting in the grill <laughs> position with Vince where we were the headsets and we watch all the monitors and talk to the referees and talk to the cameraman to make sure they don't miss shots and stuff. And so Vince was going, get that snake off us. <laughs> Holy shit. And they were pulling and tugging that snake and that thing would not let go. Yeah, and shit. Randy was violently sick for three days after that. Does Randy react like he's pissed off at Vince after that? Like, how do you, how do you, no, let that happen? no, Randy, it was Randy's idea to do the shit. Wow. You know, but Randy was really sick for three days. Whatever was in that snake's mouth, the bacteria or whatever it was, got him really sick. It's fucking crazy. That is fucked. Yeah. So recently you've been getting to a lot of health stuff. Are you launching like your own health and wellness line now? Yeah, man. Um, I got a bunch of buddies, you know, that are, Pound of the pavement, Tyson and Flair, who you guys have talked to, mm -hmm. and with Karma and with Chad and these whole group of bandoleros, you know, I kind of was going down that road anyway. I was kind of like backing away from what I was doing my whole life. 
And um, it was just a situation with just the pain in my body and inflammation. I mean, the way my wrist would swell up and my fingers and my hands, I was being that old school wrestler, you know, and having so many surgeries over so many years, you know, everything has been cut on basically. And I'm just full of metal. The, the, the pain in my body was crazy. And what the doctors do is they prescribe you pain pills all the time. So once you start eating the darn things, you know, my thing was I was going in for like surgeries every four, every four to six months for the last 10 or 12 years. So I never got a break from all the anesthesia and trying to figure out my, why my body was shutting down on me. So in order to, you know, back away from this fog and this, this days I was in after all these surgeries, I started trying to wind down from things. And, you know, the first thing I did was I got off the pain pills after years of being on them and backed into the Tylenol, Advil, a leave situation, which looking at it now, I was abusing that because to get off the pain pills and stuff like that, I would take three or four Tylenols twice a day when you're only, you're only supposed to take two a day. Yeah. And uh, I was drinking these five-hour energies with it, you know, just trying to get that that buzz to feel good and keep going. And that was nowhere. And so as soon as I quit drinking alcohol, I said, okay, if I can do that, I'm shutting everything else down, you know? And I kind of like backed away from the Tylenol and the leave and the Advil stuff. So it got to a point where I really didn't need any of that stuff anymore. You know, it was either all or none with me. I'm either all the way in or all the way out. So I said, if I'm going to clean my act up, you know, I want to get really healthy. So then, you know, at Ric Flair's birthday party, I met Chad. Rick had been telling me what he was into and how it was making him feel. And he was backing away from whatever sleeping pills or stuff we needed to eat. And he was telling me about the CDB stuff for sleep and for energy and for an overall wellness of inflammation. And the moment I started trying the products, he's all natural. It's almost like a holistic change in my life. Instantly, everything started going down, you know the um with no alcohol and no pain pills no Tylenol so nothing instantly my wrist felt better I mean within like a week you know I could tell a huge change um I could sleep through longer periods of time at night you know I wasn't I was dropping weight getting in shape really fast because I always trained trained hard but the alcohol was extra calories and mm -hmm. it kept me bloated and stuff as soon as I cleaned my act up diet wise and cleaned up myself nutrition-wise and cleaned up myself medically instead of using these prescription drugs, started using the CBD products. It completely backed me out of this like hamster wheel of not progressing to the point now where almost seven years old, I feel like if I didn't have so many surgeries, I could actually wrestle again. Damn. I'm starting to feel that good. My workouts are getting crazy. I'm down in weight. I'm like 265. I've weighed like 300 pounds my whole life. You know, I'm down 265 pounds. I feel great. I'm still strong as hell in the gym. And at 70 years old, it's not supposed to be that way, you know? Yeah. And like, if I take my shirt off on the beach, you know, I'm with my girl. I look as good as most 30 or 35 year old guys standing around, you know, because I've trained all my life and, you know, I'm more defined than I was. And I just think once I backed away, and the CDB products like kicked in. I just felt smoother. I just felt more of a flow. I felt healthier, you know, and I don't have any desire to take two Tylenol or Advil or any of that crap because the CDB kind of like 
naturally took the place of any of those, I guess, go against the grain, bad stuff I was taking. So I'm way in now. I'm all the way in. That's awesome. You guys know when you're launching any of that stuff or eight weeks. Wow. So that's going to be your own line of CBD stuff. Yes, sir. Let's go. We'll Damn, be all over awesome. those. Yeah. We got to try that. Eight weeks. Let's try it out. Let's do it. <laughs> Look at you guys. <laughs> we tried guys. some functional mushrooms this morning. You tried it this morning? Uh, we tried an energy drink. Oh, wow. How crazy. Let's give us something with you and Rick, like crazy party story. Me and Rick? <laughs> you guys, Jeez. I mean, you guys are in the same area now. Jeez. You're killing me, man. I shouldn't be talking out of school. Short story. <laughs> yeah. Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> Hooters. Oh, fuck. Me and Flair. A couple Hooters girls want a party. Let's go back to your room, Hogan. You get the bigger room. I'm in. Let's rock. Hell yeah. Short night, long night. Flair gets so trunky, hit his Rolex, he couldn't find it. <laughs> Thought the girls were going to steal it. And, uh, oh, it's just another night, you know? Yeah. Nothing special. Was the, how important was the party culture, though? Like with wrestling? There and was everything? a bond to it, bro. It's like, you know, it brought everybody together. Yeah, and it was before everybody was suing everybody and no phones. We were talking about that. Like, there's no phones for people to fucking catch you doing shit or no, like no, no, no. get you in trouble. No, back in the day, there were no camera phones. I remember the first time I heard, I heard that, yeah, that sound. I was standing in Pittsburgh, and you know, usually I was I was always last, and so I'm real slow because once I would wrestle. I would just sweat more than anybody. I'd sit there and drink a couple beers while I still had my crap on, or if I'd be sitting there naked after I took it all off, I'd drink a couple beers. And the guy I would wrestle would already have a shower and be ready to go. I said, brother, go ahead and go. Don't wait for me. Then it got to the point one time, you know, I didn't have to get up early. I sat in the dressing room, drank a couple beers. I was such good friends with the security guards in Pittsburgh at the Civic Arena. I said, you guys can leave too. I'm cool. So I'm sitting in the dressing room by myself. Drink a couple beers, walk over the shower naked, turn on the shower, and I hear, I turn around and look, and there's some guy with one of those flip phones taking pictures of me. What the fuck? Naked in the shower. And I knew from that day forward, life had changed. You know? Wow, that's fucking wild. So that's that's the first time I remember the camera phones. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. We've, we've seen some photos of Rick today. It looks like that guy's <laughs> having a good fucking time, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you might have to go join him soon, right? Yeah, oh what do you, do you go out? Or are you coming out with us tonight? No, bro, I'm cool. You guys tear it up wherever you're going. I've already been. What if Rick comes? I don't know, man. I don't know. Where are you guys going? I don't know. Where American Social? Know. Oh, God. That's his mainstay. Your place? <laughs> We're going to your bar. Shoot. I don't know, man. I don't know. All right, yeah. man. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, we appreciate it, bro. It's oh, nice to just Wait, real on. quick. Do you think you could slam him or no? Right now, with my back the way it is, no. No? Mm -mm. I'm on the head. What do you He's wait? half the weight of Andre. No, I can get him. <laughs> let's go awesome bro this is amazing yeah. thank you thank so you much, so much. Hulk you Hogan. legend Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. thanks man sweet that was fire yeah